Daniel, and this evening we come to Daniel chapter 7. So if you'd like to turn there, please. In the Church Bible, that's page 892, Daniel chapter 7. And I'll take the time to read the whole of chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. 
but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is God's word. The first half of the book of Daniel consisted of six historical stories about Daniel and his friends. In the second half of the book, we find something completely different. Actually, that's not quite true. The themes of the book stay the same. The second half of the book is equally concerned to assure us that however things may look, God is in control. And this half of the book also deals with the challenge of being a faithful witness in a society that's hostile to God. So in that sense, there's complete continuity in the book. But when it comes to how these themes are presented, things now get very different. I'm sure we're all aware that scripture is made up of various genres or kinds of literature. So, for example, the first six chapters of Daniel were narrative. The Bible also contains plenty of poetry, the Psalms, for example. We also have letters or epistles, Romans, Philippians, and so on. And tonight, we come face to face with some of the Bible's apocalyptic literature. We all have a rough idea what apocalyptic literature focuses on. There's always some new film coming out that's labeled as apocalyptic. It's material that deals mainly with the future. Visions of what's to come for the human race and the world. And the term comes from the book of Revelation. The Greek name of that book is the Apocalypse of John, meaning the revelation that was given to John. 
It's mainly a revelation of what's to come. But of course, Revelation isn't the only apocalyptic book in the Bible. The Gospels contain little bits of apocalyptic. We had one of those sections read for us earlier from Mark. And in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah contains lots of apocalyptic visions. And of course, here too in the second half of Daniel. So we have a general idea what apocalyptic literature is about. Visions of the future, and we might add to that, visions of current heavenly realities. But the most distinctive thing about apocalyptic is how it presents these visions. When we turn to apocalyptic, we find the most bizarre and grotesque and disturbing things in all of Scripture. It focuses on giving us bold, striking images, word pictures. And yet we may feel that there are pictures we can't make head nor tail of. So before we get into Daniel 7, let me just give you two tips for getting a grasp on apocalyptic. First, when you read apocalyptic, expect metaphor. Now, according to the dictionary, a metaphor applies a word or phrase to an object or action that it does not literally denote in order to apply a resemblance. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, I know, but it's an important thing to grasp. So let me try to give you a couple of examples to explain that definition. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, we find John the Baptist using a metaphor when he points at Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Jesus is not literally a woolly mammal with four legs. He is metaphorically a lamb. He's going to die for the sin of the world. Just as in the Old Testament, a literal lamb died for an individual's sin. Or again, in John chapter 10, Jesus talks about a sheepfold. And he says, I am the gate. Does he mean that he swings on two hinges and has to be oiled when he squeaks? No, it's a metaphor. He is the gateway to eternal life. As he goes on to say, whoever enters through me will be saved. When we read apocalyptic literature, we should expect lots of metaphor. And one reason for that is because most of the time we're dealing with visions of the future. Visions of heavenly realities. The person who has seen the vision is trying to describe the indescribable for us. How, for example, do you describe the throne room of heaven? How do you describe Almighty God in all his majestic glory? Well, the Apostle John has a hard time when he tries to do just that. In Revelation chapter 4, he's struggling to describe the indescribable. And so we read lots of statements like this. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass. John is reaching the outer limits of human vocabulary. The best he can do is make comparisons with things that he does know. Precious stones and glass. 
One writer says, apocalyptic literature gives its readers a roller coaster ride through the heavens and into the future. Heavenly journeys and descriptions of activities and creatures in the domain of heaven. Also unlike anything known on this earth. These writers are trying to describe the unknown things they've seen on their roller coaster ride through the heavens. We should expect them to use lots of comparisons with things that they do know. All to try to give us some grasp of the indescribable things they've seen. We'll see that Daniel is constantly saying, what I saw looked like this or that. In other words, it wasn't exactly a lion or a bear, but that's the closest thing I can compare it to. When you read apocalyptic, expect metaphor. And that leads to a second tip for getting a grasp on apocalyptic. Think of an apocalyptic vision as more like a poster than a guidebook. A poster of Venice can give you a striking image of what it's like in Venice. But it isn't going to give you all the street names and the bus timetables. And in the same way, when we come to an apocalyptic vision, we should look for the big picture. We shouldn't expect to find a detailed guidebook. We're not supposed to try and find significance in every little detail of these visions. The visions are not trying to give us all the little details. They're in the Bible to show us bold, striking pictures that will stay in our heads, make an impression on us. These visions have been described as literary shock treatment. If God had wanted to give a detailed account of the future to us, he could have set it all down as a narrative. Maybe like the book of Joshua that records Israel's conquest of Canaan, detail by detail. But God has chosen to show us bold graphic snapshots of the future. Someone has said these visions are more interested in giving us hope for the future than information about the future. Someone else says these images communicate truth to be sure, but not with precision. They're posters, not guidebooks. That's the way God has chosen to communicate truth about the future to us and about heavenly realities. So don't press the details. And if more people had heeded that advice, the world would have been spared hundreds, maybe thousands of useless books about Revelation and Daniel. The kind of books that try to take the events in the weekly newspaper and match them up with this or that little detail of some apocalyptic vision. That's not what we're meant to do. When you read apocalyptic, expect metaphor. And think of an apocalyptic vision as more like a poster than a guidebook. So then with those two tips in our minds, let's turn back to Daniel 7. And we're going to deal with this as it's laid out for us in the text. So first we'll look at Daniel's vision. And I'll try to point out things that would have been clear to Daniel's first readers, but might not be clear to us today. And then we'll see what the text says about the meaning of this vision. 
First of all, in verses 1 to 8, we meet beasts from the sea. Daniel says in verse 2, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. It all begins with a violent, raging sea. The winds are whipping up the waves. Now to us, the sea might be a beautiful, majestic thing. But in Daniel's day, the sea was a place of danger. It was a hostile thing. And in the Bible and in literature outside the Bible, it became a symbol of chaos and evil. So right from the beginning of Daniel's vision, there's an ominous mood being set. What evil is this sea cooking up? What's brewing among these churning waves? Look at verse 3. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. We don't need to ask if these beasts are friend or foe. They've come from the sea. They share the character of the sea. These are evil beasts. And as we watch them emerge from the water, we discover that they're mutant beasts. Apart from the second beast, they're perversions of God's creation. The first, Daniel says, is like a lion with the wings of an eagle. But as Daniel watches, its wings are torn off and it stands on two feet like a man. It's given the heart of a man. Then comes the second beast. This one looks like a bear and it's gorging itself on flesh. Behind that one comes a third that looks like a leopard, but it has four wings and four heads. And then comes the final beast. This one is different from the other three. Daniel hardly knows how to describe this one. It doesn't resemble any animal that he knows. He doesn't know what this one is like. In verse 7, he says it's terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It crushes and devours and tramples. Daniel does notice that this beast has ten horns. Throughout scripture, horns symbolize power. So, for example, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, Zechariah sings that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He's referring to God coming in saving power in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a godly use of power. But Psalm 75 talks about the ungodly use of power. The psalmist says, To the arrogant I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your horns against heaven. In other words, don't challenge heaven. Don't be so blinded with pride that you try to take on Almighty God. Well, here in Daniel's vision, this final beast has ten horns. Great, violent, ungodly strength. But then Daniel says in verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. This eleventh horn might be little, but it has great ambition. It has eyes like the eyes of a man, and it's full of boasting. 
Well, what are we to make of this? It's a hideous picture. It's like a scene from a horror film. Frankenstein's monster was nothing compared to this. How could an artist even paint this? Daniel hardly knows how to describe what he's seeing. As he watches, these mutant beasts are being ripped up. And they're ripping themselves up. Wings torn off from bodies, horns uprooted from heads. One writer says, this is a picture of chaos unleashed. That about sums it up. This is an image of evil, violent power run riot. But before we get a chance to really think about what we're seeing, the spotlight abruptly moves. Maybe you've been to see a play where there are two scenes on the stage at the same time. So maybe on one side of the stage there's a soldier out in the trenches. And on the other side we see his mother at home reading one of his letters. And the spotlight moves from one to the other and back again. One scene is shedding some light on the other. That's a little bit like Daniel's vision. In verse 8, we have this little horn jabbering away boastfully, asserting itself and its power. But abruptly, the spotlight swings away to the center of the stage. We can still hear that little horn shrieking away about how great it is. But now our attention has been moved somewhere else. Look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. The Ancient of Days and the Rider on the Clouds. The Rider in the Clouds will come in a moment. But first, verses 9 and 10 describe a throne room. That's also a courtroom. The king on his throne is going to pass sentence. We've moved from a scene of horror and chaos to a scene of settled authority. There's no chaos here. There's no uncertainty here. Daniel sees the Ancient of Days. In other words, the one whose days cannot be numbered. His clothing is white as snow. In other words, he's perfectly righteous and pure. His hair is white like wool. He's perfectly wise. White hair was a symbol of wisdom. But this is not a harmless old man. No, his throne is flaming with fire. In other words, he has awe-inspiring power. Power that reaches everywhere. We're told his throne has wheels, indicating that nowhere is beyond his reach. And those wheels are all ablaze. He has power to burn up all in front of him. A river of fire is flowing out from him. This fiery power appears throughout the Old Testament whenever God is present. And the New Testament writer to the Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. This is God the Father Almighty on the throne. 
And he is served, we're told, by countless numbers, thousands upon thousands. But in reality, everyone stands under his authority. If thousands upon thousands attend him, 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him under his authority. It seems that the larger number is a way of saying everybody there is stands before him to do his will. Then Daniel watches as this all-powerful God opens the books. It's time for his judgment. All the while we've been watching this throne room, the little horn has been ranting and raving in the background, asserting itself, shaking its fist. And now briefly, the spotlight swings back to that scene of chaos. Verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. God's judgment falls. The beasts may have claimed authority, but they are under God's authority. Even the terrible final beast. We might wonder who carries out God's judgment. Well, Daniel describes him for us in verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There's something unique about this picture. Because in Scripture, only God rides on the clouds. There are about 70 passages in the Old Testament where Yahweh, the Lord, comes on the clouds. That's how he's described. So, for example, in Psalm 68, we read, Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord. Or Psalm 104, The Lord makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. Scripture is clear. The clouds are God's chariot. But Daniel sees a man riding in the cloudy chariot. And when this man approaches the Ancient of Days, he is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worship him. This is the language used earlier in Daniel to refer to God himself. This is the power and authority that the beasts have been desperate to get their hands on. But it's power and authority that belongs to God alone. And so the beasts have been destroyed because of their grasping, self-exalting pride. But here, the Ancient of Days gives his own power and authority to the man who rides on the clouds. This man is not destroyed like the beasts. They were judged for reaching for something that wasn't theirs to have. But this man is given an eternal kingdom. This is unique. A man with all of God's power and privileges. Power to destroy the beasts, even the greatest final beast. 
Well, at this point, Daniel decides that he needs help. The vision is not over, but Daniel wants to ask some questions. Look at verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So now we know that the beasts represent earthly kingdoms or regimes. And scholars have put lots of time and effort into trying to figure out which beast corresponds to which kingdom in history. And certainly it's not wrong to look for those kind of historical tie-ups. We probably can link the first beast to the Babylonian Empire and the second to the Empire of the Medes and Persians and so on. But the significance of the beast is not exhausted by those regimes of the past. How do we know that? Because the last beast, we're told, is still around when the final judgment comes. And the final judgment is still ahead of us. So the fulfillment of Daniel's vision has not been and gone in past history. In fact, I think the beasts are intentionally ambiguous. They primarily represent not four past kingdoms, but a successive line of evil kingdoms. A successive line that will continue unbroken until the final judgment day. Beasts will keep emerging from the sea until God calls this age to a close. Or to put it another way, there will always be a new God-defying regime rising up to take the previous one's place. These four mutants are just a representative sample. We're being told here to expect one beast after another, a procession that goes on right to the end of history. So we should not be surprised when each new one emerges. We should not be surprised at the depravity and oppression caused by human pride, the boasting and the violence of human leaders and regimes. We can all think of a long line of beasts from the recent past, some from the present. Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-il, Robert Mugabe. Human leaders filled with pride. Pride that causes violence and chaos and injustice in this world. It will all continue until the end of history. And just as not all four beasts in this vision are equally awful, so it has to be said that some beasts will be a lot more oppressive than others. Some might seem relatively tame, but still God-defying in their own way. Well, then, what does this mean for God's people? In verse 18, the, annual, the, the angel told Daniel, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. But that's at the end of history. What happens until then? In verses 19 and following, Daniel asks more about the fourth beast. 
And in verse 23, the angel gives him this answer. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. So here we have the meaning. Suffering and victory for the saints. At some point in history, there will be a final beast. At some point, the last self-exalting human ruler will come. And before God calls a halt to it, that final ruler's reign will be worse than all the others. There will be oppression and worse over the whole earth. God's people will suffer. Verse 25 mentions that this human leader or government will speak against the Most High. This regime will also try to change the set times and the laws. That's a reference to the religious calendar and religious practices. This leader will try to restrict freedom of worship. And he will assail God's people, we're told, for a time, times, and half a time. That's an intentionally vague reference. I think the best suggestion is that it means the rebellion of this leader will get off to a fast start. It will seem like it's going to last forever, but then it will suddenly be cut off. A time, times, and half a time. So the saints will suffer under human rulers. And at this point, we might want to ask, well then, why not have human rulers coming out of the sea? Why do we need gruesome beasts? I think the answer is that these are not just human rulers. There's a spiritual power involved in this. These human rulers and regimes are serving the greatest God-defier of all the devil himself. He's working through them. That's why they're presented to us as inhuman beasts. There is more than just human power at work. We saw a few weeks ago in Luke's Gospel that Satan is defeated, but he fights on. And often he fights through God-defying human regimes and structures. Regimes and structures that seek not only to defy God, but to crush God's people. But this is not the end of the story. One day the kingdoms of chaos will come to an end. In God's time, the last of the beasts will have his power taken away. And he will be completely destroyed forever. Then God and his people will reign unchallenged. 
And that is just the beginning of an eternal story for God's people. We might ask, how is this final victory going to come about? And to answer that question, we have to think some more about the man we were introduced to in Daniel's vision. The son of man who rides on the clouds. When we get to the New Testament, we find that Jesus' chosen title for himself is the Son of Man. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus' words about the future. Words that correspond to Daniel's vision. Bethan read the section from Mark for us earlier. As Jesus speaks about tough times ahead, he also says this. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds. Jesus is quoting Daniel's vision. He's saying, I'm the rider on the clouds that Daniel saw. I'm the man who has all of God's power and authority, power to bring judgment and power to deliver from judgment. At God's appointed time, his son will return. Those who defy him will be destroyed forever. But all who have accepted him as king will share in his kingdom, his eternal rule. Many of the images from Daniel's visions reoccur in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 13, we find almost the same vision as here in Daniel 7. You don't need to turn there, but John finishes his vision in Revelation 13 like this. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And that is also the challenge of Daniel 7. Now, it's true that we don't live under an oppressive regime. But we may be called to endure oppression in the future. And many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world know all about kingdoms of chaos. They live under self-exalting God-defying rulers. As God's people, we are all called to trust that however things may look, God is in control. And we're called to be faithful witnesses as we wait for the king to return. We're going to sing a final hymn that ends with a prayer from the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. And that must always be part of the prayers of God's people. So let's stand as we sing, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. <laughs>